Welcome to More with Less, the podcast that looks at how businesses balance financial growth with sustainability. I'm Jadi Prabhu and I am Venkata Gandikota. In this episode, we speak to Mike Barry, Director of Sustainable Business at MNS for several years and now a leading advisor and commentator on sustainability. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. We know you've been working at the heart of sustainable business for some years now. So maybe you could start by telling us a bit about yourself and your personal journey and how you came to do what you're doing. Jody, thank you. And thank you for the kind invitation to join you. So my journey quite straightforward. I did a chemistry degree, did in consultancy in a different century back in the 1990s, learned a lot from that. Very conscious that the discussion then was very much about environmental pollution, but very little, if anything, about climate change. And I'm just reading Alice Bell's book on climate change, The Great Experiment, our greatest experiment. And going back through that 200 years of history makes us realise how Many issues are living in plain sight They're there for hundreds of years, but we choose as society, as leaders, to ignore them. So anyway, I did my sort of stint in consultants and decided I want to be in one business, make a difference within one business, and uh, fortuitously joined M&S. Very lucky. The then Chief Financial Officer, Alison Reid, gave me a chance as an executive financial assistant, somewhat bizarrely, to get me on the books as a junior environment manager, no line manager, no budget, sort stuff out. Rose within the business. And my first big piece of learning on that journey I would share with anybody is surround yourself by good people. I was looking at MS to be surrounded by outstanding leaders. A great colleague, Roland Hill, who was at the very heart of MS for 20 years, building sustainability there um, before I joined. Colleagues like Adam Elman, who led the implementation of Plan A, Carmel de Quaid, who was part of the intellectual uh, development of it and the shaping of it. Louise Nichols in Foods implementing it. So all around me, I was surrounded by great people, and that was a really important piece of learning. So Stuart Rose came in as the new chief executive of M&S in 2004, very bloody take of a battle with a guy called Sir Philip Green, and thankfully he saw him off, which saved the business in so many different ways. And Stuart said to us, I want to be a leader on sustainability. How do I do it? And that was the inspiration for Plan A, because there is no Plan B for the one planet we've got. We launched back in 2007, a long, long time ago now. And that's my second piece of learning from all this, which is vision. Stuart, I, those around us, didn't know what true leadership and sustainability meant back then. Goodness, it's so much clearer now. But we had the vision to extend ourselves and really push beyond the old world of corporate responsibility of CSR, a little bit of do-gooding, and really look at systemically reducing the footprint of the business through the products and services that MS sold. So a lot of businesses just ran a CSR program on the edge of the business. And it was whether you're a tech company, a finance company, or a food retailer, it was all just the same stuff, just do some stuff with charity. But we went to the very heart of the MS business model, which is food and fashion and selling stuff and making sure that stuff was produced to the highest standards, was consumed, not wasted, had a second, third, or fourth life going forward. So we were one of the first big mainstream businesses to put that at the very heart of what we did. So that was the second bit of learning for me was vision. Once we'd launched a plan, lots of people said to me, might leave the business now. You've made yourself, you've established your name as a creator of strategies. Don't be the guy that hangs around and sees it fail. And I'm really glad that I stayed. And for those that have seen me, they'll see a lot of grey hair on my head and lines under my eyes. And 
That's because it was difficult in, integrating sustainability into a big, busy business, 83,000 colleagues, 1,000 shops, thousands of suppliers and farms in the supply chain, 3 billion items sold to 32 million customers. It's a big set of numbers. They're conscious that Walmart's 25 times bigger than M&S, so do the math. So that's the third thing I learned on that journey at M&S was integration, the importance of getting this owned by the food division, the finance, the fashion division, property, the marketing teams, the comms teams, the HR teams. And again, it was never done perfectly, but so many good people worked really hard against a difficult economic backdrop to do that. And we drove that integration so it was owned locally, the business case, the focus areas, the learning. And again, there's sometimes tensions between you in the middle and, and those business units, but it was absolutely critical that they owned it. The fourth thing I learned alone was evolution. So even in my time at MS, we went through about four different iterations of planning. We launched a five-year plan, and within two years, we knew it was already out of date. It needed to be more ambitious. New topics emerged. Things were solved. So you never stopped in, in integrating and improving the plan moving forward. And the final thing I learned just I came out of MS a couple of years ago, 19 years at MS, a bit exhausted. You have to be full of energy and beans to keep pushing transformation because that's what it is transformation. CSR wasn't, it was about managing the status quo. Sustainability is transformation. And if, it, if you're 10%, 20%, 30% off the pace as the individual leader of that, you're in the wrong place because it's difficult. So finding ways for you, the leader of sustainability, to keep your energy levels high, however you might do that, I'm sure we can explore it later, critically important. So five bits of learning from my journey at M&S. Well, that's really interesting, Mike. Thank you for that really comprehensive but succinct retelling of the story. Now, you talked a lot about sustainability, but I want to ask you, what does sustainability mean to you? This is such a brilliant question. Again, I go back to Alice Bell's book that I'm reading at the moment, and she reminded me about the Brundtland Commission in the 1980s, about balancing the needs of now and the future. And it was a big deal for two or three years, that definition, and then it waned and disappeared ever so slightly. I think now it's right back on, on the agenda. Because in effect, our generation today is borrowing from the future of our children, our grandchildren. And that very clearly, we are literally using up all the spare capacity of the planet to produce resources and absorb our pollution as a society and as an economy. There's literally nothing left. Now, 20 years ago, we knew that, but we kicked the tin down the road. It was just too distant. It was somebody else's problems. That problem is here and now. And it's not just environmental. What are we giving our kids now? A gig economy. So I grew up in, in a world where, provided you didn't make a tremendous mistake, you had a job for life, you had a pension at the end of it. I got on the property ladder at a fairly early stage, even though that was difficult, there was ever-rising house prices, surf up on. Lots of reasons why my generation, uh, and I'm 54 now, had a brilliant time. And I can find little reasons to grumble and feel sorry for myself, but really, come on. Actually, the pattern we're now passing to our children and their children is just awful. So sustainability to me is about making sure that we are preparing our kids for the future, leaving them far more upside than it's currently on the table. And where we're leaving them big problems, helping them with the solutions and helping build resilience into their lives individually and collectively to deal with the sort of the dystopia that might, and I stress the word might, happen in the not too distant future. So this is, I understand, this is very personal to you from what you have said so far, but from the angle of role of business, when you came into M&S, before M&S, were you also working on any sustainability projects with businesses? 
and what do you see the role of business in this sustainability process? Yeah, it's a great question. Again, I go back to the 1990s. And when I was working with business then as a consultant, it was predominantly about meeting regulations to a degree protecting your reputation. But it was very much an 80 or 90% driven by legal compliance. So back in the 1960s, 1970s, early 1980s, there'd been virtually no regulation. You know, business just profligately exploited the planet and polluted the planet. Through the 1970s, 80s, in the European Union, in the US, you saw, saw, saw more and more regulations and business were just running around saying, how do I respond to this new legislation? And that's what I helped them with. One of the most exciting things I did was I was out in Hungary in the early 1990s after the Berlin Wall fell, helping Hungary build the water pollution laws that were the commonplace in the EU at the time, but they had to learn how to do them to join the EU. So that was a great experience to realise that even relatively advanced economies like Hungary didn't have that basic legislation in place and needed to do it. Skip forward, and then in the early 2000s, it went from legal compliance to reputation. So lots of businesses that didn't have lots of laws covering them, FMCG, retailers, didn't have the rules and laws of heavy industry, heavy chemicals, heavy steel to chase them. They had to do it because rightly Greenpeace was chasing them on the front page of the Guardian, doing benchmarks on pesticide use or fish sourcing or wood sourcing. So there's a real business case then emerged beyond legal compliance about your reputation. You didn't want to harm it. But now the rate the business case has evolved in the last two or three years dramatically again beyond reputation. It's about existential business model disruption. So we've seen it in power, the shift from coal to wind and solar and battery storage. And again, 10 years ago, the boardrooms of the world's power companies were laughing at the thought of wind and solar ever disrupting them. Now they've been torn apart by the complacency. Same in mobility. Five years ago, the big diesel-powered uh, car companies would never imagined that Tesla would ever usurp them. 2013, Tesla was worth 12 billion US dollars. Now it's worth over 600 billion. Now, a bit of speculative froth in there, but it's worth more than the, all the other car companies on the planet put together because they were asleep at the collective wheel. The same is about to happen in food. The food industry is living on borrowed time, which is both contributing the biggest impact to negativity on the planet and is also going to have the biggest negative impacts upon it in terms of having to feed another billion, two billion people in the next 10 to 20 years. The food industry needs to be utterly transformed. And those that think it's just a little bit about 1% or 2% or 3% less bad each year will be swept away. So again, what we've sifted from legal compliance to reputation to business model disruption. And after food, every other productive sector on the planet will go through the same disruption quickly. So you talked about three points, legislation, reputation, business model, right? So do you think these constitute already like the major drivers? What do you think about the major drivers of sustainability in business? So those three will remain important. The fourth thing that will emerge is obviously cost. So again, increasingly businesses will rightly have to play the true cost of their external impacts on the planet. One of the reasons that the more sustainable option that we can buy ourselves, whether it's the car or the food or the fashion, costs more today, partly because it's subscale, but partly because it's having it's not getting the hidden subsidy from the taxpayer of all the damage that the conventional product is causing. I want to see a price in carbon injected into the marketplace. You know, a price in carbon, there's complexities, it's not perfect, but increasingly it demands that if people are getting a free pass at the moment, the easy option, putting a polluting piece of meat or polluting car or polluting piece of fashion into the marketplace, a low financial cost to the consumer, 
those people pay the true cost. So that's critical to me. So rising costs because people having to pay for externalities will drive. Clearly, we're hearing more and more about the war for talent, a new generation of leaders coming into the marketplace who want to work for a business that remunerates them well, has an exciting career for them, but also as a person, a purpose and a passion about them as well. So that being able to secure and retain and motivate talent will become more and more important. There's another business case, sadly, which is about resilience. So again, I think we've seen a summer of extreme weather events all around the world, from floods in Central Europe to the wildfires and the heat domes in North America, flooding in China. We've now got dreadful wildfires in the Mediterranean. And I think businesses begin to realise that this has a dreadful impact on communities, human life and livelihoods, but also on supply chains, the availability of raw materials, the ability to actually deliver these just in time. But fragile supply chains, again, it was not to do with sustainability, but the blocking of the Suez Canal, by the, the big boat that got stuck there, showed how quickly the global economy can be brought to its knees. So it only requires cataclysmic flooding in certain parts of supply chains, or heat or wind, and you've got real problems as well. So I think that the business case for action grows bigger, but more complicated as well, as more and more issues are injected into the discussion for business. So, Mike, you've given us a really compelling picture of why business should change and become more sustainable. What would you say are some of the big impediments to that happening? So, I think impediment number one we've already touched on, which is today's businesses not paying the true cost of the damage they cause through their products and services. So, I've made that point already, I won't repeat it. The second thing is, we also have to be realistic. For many businesses dealing with the pandemic, it's been a dreadful experience of actually surviving through it. And for those businesses that have boomed through it, responding to burgeoning consumer demand. So there's just been reasons for people just to be a little bit heads down in that. The third thing I think is a lack of transparency. The more transparency that's injected into the marketplace, the better. I spoke about 10, 15 years ago when people like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and Oxfam started to benchmark businesses and compare them and say, here's a leader, here's a laggard in a sector. And that was done at very much at a brand level, but it concentrated a lot of mind in the boardroom. Nobody wanted to come bottom of those lead tables, even if you didn't want to come top. That was transparency 1.0. Transparency 2.0 goes beyond that sort of broad brand or corporate level down to an SKU level, a by SKU level or individual product level. So the availability of hyper-detailed information on a product, its impact, where it came from, critically important. And again, we've seen the proverbial breeze block that Unilever's thrown into the pond by committing to put 75,000 unique products through carbon labelling. And even Unilever said they're not quite sure whether that will shift consumer demand, but they want to try, which is the right thing to do. So again, we're going to see incredibly detailed transparency injects into the marketplace to move things forward with what we need. And the fourth thing, the real elephant in the room for me, is the paradigm of growth and consumption. We're all hooked on it. This generation of business leaders have been brought up with an orthodoxy that you've failed unless you've sold more physical stuff next year than this year. And I think we've got to find a way of breaking that and saying it's about creating value for your business, your shareholders, for society, not through physical stuff sold, but by the value you inject into society and the economy, the solutions you bring to the table for people's lives. And again, we've, I feel that the circular economy lags the net zero carbon solution at the moment 
because we're not quite defining what we mean by circularity and how it solves people's problems. So people are hooked, whether it's in business or as consumers, on single-use plastics, on single-use clothing, on technology that can't be updated. We need to shift that paradigm. And that, to me, is the fundamental elephant in the room that's holding us back from creating the economy that we need in the future. Thanks for that, Mike. I'm wondering whether you could perhaps share an example from your time at MNS of how sustainability and social impact were taken into account and how that played out. Yeah, and Jardy, great question. Let me offer just two brief examples. I'm going to take you back to something called Schwappy, Marks and Spencer launched back in 2008, 2009 with Oxfam. And MNS, even though 14 years ago, recognized this circularity problem. Now, MNS had always been proud that it produced quality clothing that lasted. And actually, if you talk to the charity shops, the clothing that had the best second, third, fourth hand resale value was MS clothing because it built to last. But MS knew that it had to drive more people to donate clothing. So it set up a relationship with Oxfam, 750 charity shops in the UK, to encourage MS customers to take used MS clothing back to those Oxfam charity shops. Oxfam resold the clothing, raised £2 million for its vital overseas development work in Africa. Great social impact. MS customers avoided an environmental impact of throwing clothing away. So by linking social and environmental, we saw a real positivity. And then thirdly, economically, MS by encouraging consumers to participate in that, if they did need new clothing, and I stress if, they could then return to MS rather than another clothing retailer and buy quality, long lasting clothing and then donate it when they're finished with it again. And the second observation is something to do with called Marks and Start. And Marks and Start recognised that thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in Britain face real difficulties getting to work. They might be single parents, they might have a disability, they might have been homeless, they might just be from a background where going to university and getting into a good career is just not expected, it's never talked about, there's no aspiration there. And MS worked with thousands of people from all these different backgrounds every year through placements in its stores to give them the confidence and the skills to get into the employment ladder. And some of those jobs were at entry level, stocking the shelf, but it gave you confidence. You knew you had to turn up on time, you had to interact with consumers, you did it, it gave you confidence, you moved up the ladder. And that ultimately helped tens of thousands of people into work. And MS then spun that model off into work with other businesses called Movement to Work. So it wasn't just MS, but it's many other dozens of British businesses committed to helping people from difficult backgrounds get into the world of work as well. So there are two examples I'll draw from MS experience of how you can make a real scale difference. I'm just wondering if I could follow up with a question on a more personal note, if you have any personal stories to share of businesses or anyone else trying sustainability and it working or not and how it touched your life, perhaps. There's always personal experience, but I've thrown out lots of big numbers in the last sort of 15 minutes or so. We'll talk about many other big issues in a minute. But I'm a dad. I've got three teenage kids. I've been really touched my sort of visits with MS around the global supply chain. So probably the most important for me was being in Bangladesh, in Dakar, in the world's biggest slum. You know, many factory workers sadly live there. They've got a job. No means enough money to have a really decent living in Bangladeshi 
um, context. So we're working with UNICEF, and I went to this the world's biggest slum with UNICEF, and I had to ask permission to enter it because there's no rule of law there, no police to go and get permission from somebody called the Mazdan, the overlord of the slum, to spend MS money through UNICEF improving the water supply there. And I had a brilliant, an eye opener of just the squalor, the difficulty, the ill health of the lives of millions, billions of people on the planet, but also the positivity and the hope in there. And two things stick out in my mind. One was the meeting this project that UNICEF was doing for MS there, which was in effect paying parents not to sell their daughters at the age of 13 into servitude to become a baby baking machine for a man twice, three times their age. It was horrible. And I speak as a father of a daughter. And for a relative pittance, $50, transformational for those families and how they were living. But that money was able enabling those girls to become, go on to become teachers, businesswomen, political leaders. And that just stuck with me. And there are many hundreds, thousands of projects like that done around the world by good businesses and charities. But standing there and seeing the difference and meeting the girls that was making the difference too was just overwhelming as well. And then I think another thing, I went to Central America to look at prawn farming. You know, lots of allegations about prawn farming, lots of mangrove swamp, human rights abuses, etc. Visited these mangrove, these prawn farmers that are supplying MS, doing a great job, really working hard and finding a way of managing nature and, and working with society as well, creating relatively good jobs. But it was so difficult because there was no overarching institutional framework or rule of law in a sense for them to work within. So everything was being self-created, self-policed. They were writing their definition of what a sustainable business was. And that was hard. And you could see how easily it could be done well and how easily it could be done badly. But literally seeing is believing. And that, that just two stories out of dozens and dozens of human experiences that I took with me through that MS journey and, and, and learned huge richness and humility from them as well. We see these things, there's social impact, there's environmental impact. Um, so in one sense, there is like the inequality uh, aspect of things. Then there's the environment aspect of things. I read somewhere and I actually also agree that we talk about the environment, we talk about climate change, but at the end of the day, it's about humanity, it's about inequality, environmental impact also comes to social impact in a way. What do you see the links between this inequality, the environment, and also technology? Wow, what, what a fantastic question. And let me just offer a, a prosaic observation first. Every morning I watch the sustainable business news, and it's my life. I love it, I breathe it. For every 10 net zero climate ambition stories I get from business. And I've seen some really good stuff now. Now it's ambition, not action. I'd see some really good stuff from business now in terms of net zero. On social sustainability, for every 10 climate stories, I'm seeing one on social ambition. And most social ambition, most social commitment from business is still about risk management, not killing people, not abusing people, not having kids in your factories. It's pitiful. And you're absolutely right. Unless we can link the environmental with the social, we will fail. And I grew up in the 1970s and 80s in the UK watching communities destroyed by globalisation. So people had good jobs in steel mills, in coal mines, in clothing factories. And these were rapidly exported off to the Far East and other marketplaces. And no one stepped in to help those communities rebalance themselves afterwards. So in terms of the UK's overall prosperity, it was a great move. It made Britain as a whole a richer nation. 
For those specific communities, it devastated them. Now, I'm worried we're going to repeat the same mistake all over again. Because those communities, in part, for lots of reasons, but in part came back with Brexit and your sort with Trump and other populism to rebel against what globalisation did to them. They were the guinea pigs. They're the ones that suffered so everybody else could have a better life. Now, what do we risk doing when it comes to the low-carbon transition? We'll leave more coal miners behind and more steel workers behind and more diesel workers behind and more beef farmers behind. Unless we invest into the just transition, and actually help people retrain and find new skills. A new set of communities will be left behind and rebel against net zero because it's doing nothing for them in their eyes. And then you've got also then the, the second sort of part of all of that, which is climate justice. And again, this is where I can, I can say these words very humbly. At the moment, we've got a lot of old white men with grey hair looking like me making decisions on behalf of very much more diverse communities around the planet now and well into the future. Where's the justice in that? And if even if my sort of generation of leaders that have led us to the edge of the precipice reform ourselves and say, hey, we've got the Kool-Aid now, we recognise everything we've done wrong, we're committed to a good future, still us elite making the decisions on behalf of everybody else, which is wrong. And the third dimension you touched on there is technology. I'm a great believer that technology can solve a lot of the sustainability problems that we've got. Tracking and tracing those hundreds of billions, if not trillions of items that we sell, making sure they're produced to higher standards, consumers know what to do with them when they're finished with them, how to use them optically, brilliant, love all that. But if that technology, if we're cloning meat in a lab controlled by one corporation, shadowy corporation that's paying no taxes anywhere, that sort of holds your data and never tells you how it's what the purpose of using it for, is that a better future for us? No, it's not. So all around is the environment and the social dimension of sustainability that should be linked at the hip, but are not. And that's because business and government are not looking at this in an integrated and separated the two out. And I think my final point, the filed social sustainability under too difficult because people talk back. And even if you think you're coming up with the right answer, people turn around and push back and say no. Whereas What's happening with the trees or the oceans is we're talking, or campaign groups are talking on their behalf. But the ocean doesn't turn back to say, I didn't want you to do that to protect me. And that's what we've got to get ahead around. Much more democratic approach to protect and create a better future. You briefly talked about in your answer towards the end, the technology, and then you didn't use the word, but I assumed that you're talking about like the supply chains, etc. And then these days we've been seeing startups coming up in the space and talking about blockchains for transparency in supply chains, so on and so forth. So that is something that quickly came into my mind. But then also you talked about this like lab meet or any of those other things. So broadly speaking, let's talk about how do you see technology help addressing sustainability itself? Yeah. And just in summary, the sustainability challenge is one, in some ways, of data. It's a challenge of data. So we've got, we talk, we throw the numbers around glibly, 7.7 billion people on the planet now, soon 9 billion. We consume trillions of items of food, 130 billion pieces of clothing and footwear just before the pandemic hit in a year. Billions of phones, tens of millions of cars every year. So we throw these sort of numbers around. But if you try and track and trace all of that using the classical spreadsheet, you'll go and say, with artificial intelligence and big data, you can start to get your arms around these huge data sets. 
And actually, the businesses that prosper in the future are the ones that see sustainability and digital transformation as two sides of the same coin. They're so interlinked. So that's the positive of all this. The downside is that the environmental movement is littered with pantophile loans. So let's go back 30, 40 years. We got out of the ozone crisis, CFCs, by getting into HFCs. But they're bad for global warming potential. We got out of trans fats, which are bad for the human health and human hearts, and we replaced them with palm oil, chopped down forests. We asked people to replace petrol cars with diesel cars because they had better miles per gallon, but created a crisis of air pollution in city centres. So all around us, even when we've done something on the surface good, we've created secondary negative impacts. Technology brings all of those, and I think those technology impacts are less environmental but much more human. Who controls? Who programs the AI? So it's literally colorblind in terms of how it helps society. Who are the corporations? How transparent are the corporations that control it, that control the data, whether they pay the taxes? So all these issues are injected into a technology-led society. And I don't think at this moment in time we're really defining what it means to be a responsible technology, not just technology company, but technology-using company. And I've saw some sort of really interesting work by, I think it was Sloan, did a definition of, a separate new definition of corporate responsibility for a digital-based business, as opposed to a product-led business that dominated the 20th century. And there's some good new thinking coming through in that for me, which just started to say, we need to face into this now, otherwise we'll be sweeping up another mess in 10 years' time. So, Mike, when you look around you at the business landscape, do you see any particular sectors, uh, high level, any sectors that are in the lead where it comes to sustainability? Only in the sense of in the lead from inaction. So I now see a power sector scrabbling around to respond to Orsted or Vestas. I see a car industry scrabbling around to respond to Tesla. So all around me, I see people who are on the back foot and I see new startups disrupting them because it's been made too easy for the startups. And we saw this with digital. We saw a whole raft of the old economy swept away by Apple and Google and Amazon and Facebook 10, 15 years ago. But then we saw big businesses like Walmart and Coca-Cola learn to use digital as well. The same will happen in sustainability. So startups will emerge, they'll grow to be at least as big as today's businesses. Again, the Tesla story. Many existing businesses that are around today will fail because they were too slow to respond to sustainability. So that's the general point. But having seen power and mobility, I made the point very quickly a moment ago about the food sector. So the food sector generates about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions on the planet. Uh, it's clearly the main driver of biodiversity loss on the planet, water overuse, a significant part of the plastics pollution problem, huge amounts of inequality and unfairness in global supply chains, particularly for 600 million smallholder farmers. And and of course, the well-being crisis we've got in terms of not enough food, too much food wasted, too many calories consumed by others. So all around me, I look at a food sector that really is not fit for purpose in any shape or form. That is being disrupted now. And I love the story at the moment. There's a story of a startup in the States called Plant Ag. And it's trying to raise about nine billion US dollars. And this is incredibly speculative. I make no endorsement of it. And I make no sense that this is business model will succeed or not. But what it's trying to achieve is instructive. 
It wants to take a third of US produce production indoors, indoor vertical farms. 99% less impact on the environment from pesticides, waters and fertilisers. A lot less human right abuse compared to what you get in the fields at the moment with illegal immigrants being used to pick. A lot cleaner and safer for the end consumer. A lot of E. coli uh, associated with the US produce industry and death and illness from that. A lot fresher for the consumer. It gets to the marketplace within two days rather than 12 days. Tick, 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 tick. Lots of good reasons to want that to work. But potentially it puts thousands of US middle American farmers and farming communities out of work debate and discuss. So that is a sector that whether it likes it or not, these disruptors will emerge and many will fail. That's disruption, many will fail. But from the wreckage of today's system will emerge the new food system. And I think a pathway for the food system in three ways. One is this high-tech, indoor, laboratory-grown, personalised diet pathway. And that will probably be a little bit more about relatively rich, affluent marketplace has been able to make decisions. I see another pathway which a lot of the NGOs would want and I would support as an individual, which is regenerative agriculture. Not just avoiding bad things, but locking carbon up in the soil through good farming practice, regrowing nature, regrowing habitats. I'm not sure it's going to be the biggest part of the food system, but it will be high value for those that sort of deliver it. And then the bit in the middle is today's industrialised food system we have today. It's already run very efficiently. That's why we've got many of the sort of secondary social, environmental, animal welfare problems of it. But it will increasingly use these data solutions, precision farming, big data sets, remote sensing, driverless tractors, to reduce its impact on the environment, but not quite as much as regenerative and indoor will. Now, that's three potential pathways for the food system. That's happening here and now. I think the fashion sector is being disrupted by resale platforms. Again, it's sleepwalked into the sense that you just keep, keep flogging new stuff into the future. It can't. Models like Thrift Plus, ThreadUp, Depop, just, just sold for 1.7 billion. Vestier Collective just valued at 4 billion US in its latest fundraising round. These models mean that people are increasingly not just wearing clothing once, but if they want to then sell it. So again, they've been asleep at the wheel today's fast fashion businesses, so these sort of new, more sustainable resale platforms to emerge. Same is happening with finance, same is going to happen with tourism, same is happening with infrastructure, as we have to think about the cities that we want in the future, resilient, low carbon, fair and equal. So all around me, I can see now a series of dominoes tumbling through the next decade, not just in terms of reputation and a bit of CSR, but fundamentally reimagined nation of their basic business model. So yeah, that's wonderful. You've talked about so many sectors, food, but you also talked about clothing, retail more generally, the tech sector, mobility, and so on. Are there any sectors that no one's really talking about and should be talking about in the sustainability space? Oh, that's a really good question. I think everybody's now lurching around in the darkened room look, look, looking for the light switch to, to put on and work out where they sit down at the new table. I think tourism's a really interesting one because clearly it's been decimated by the pandemic and you feel for anybody involved in that. But how we will be using our recreational time to recharge our batteries in the future, I think will be very different. And you, know, you only begin to speculate on what virtual reality tourism might look like. For me, you had the privilege and luck to travel a lot around the world with all the associated carbon footprint, I'm afraid. 
can would shudder at the thought. But maybe that comes in a world which is too hot to visit places. And again, you look at all the wildfires we're having in the Mediterranean now and people in hotels being evacuated. What's their future? We see ski resorts losing its snow at high altitude because the world is warming. Aviation that thinks the future is probably a linear disruption. We might have electric flights in 20 years. You'll see at some point in the next 10 years a concerted societal movement to fly less and that's not to say that we won't all fly a bit but just like meat reduction flexitarians we will see a movement in terms of reducing flying now there'll be more people on the planet so maybe the overall impact is lessened for the aviation companies but again we assume that the future is linear it's not so i would definitely watch out for what's happening in tourism i think finance as well just let's leave it on this one Finance did nothing for 20 years, apart from a very small number of impact funds and impact investors. Now, all the big banks, certainly in the Western marketplaces, are getting the ESG gospel. They've all got a report. They've all got a fund. It's my old world of CSR and corporate responsibility. It's tick the box, risk avoidance, strip the bare bones back, and none of them are transformative in any great scale. And I think that's a sector that's going to have to come back and do a second or a third iteration of what it means to be a sustainable finance sector to shift to this truly impact-led model. And also then this desire to shift much more quickly amount out of the losers of these disruptions we talked about, stranded assets, not just in the oil and power sector, but the food sector, the fashion sector, the tourism sector, how quickly you could be on the wrong side of these investments left with an awful lot of money locked in assets that will never be used again. So I think the whole finance sector just needs to wake up and move further and faster on these things. You talked about sectors so far, initially the ones that are doing something in here and then the ones that nobody's talking much about. But then do you have any particular business systems, like a shout out, that are doing good things on this issue right now? Yeah, and let me use examples and just in terms of about transparency, I'm not working with any of these businesses specifically. I would apart from maybe a couple I'll mention at the end. There's a UK technology retailer called Dixon's Car Fun Warehouse. That just like many businesses just made a big net zero scope one, two, and three commitment. Really like it. But there's two things underlying it that are much better than most. First is a commitment to work with ten thousand suppliers actively to help them do it. So most businesses make a big net scope three commitment and they just say to the suppliers, get on with it. Dixons have turned around and said, we're going to help you. So I, I really like that. The second thing they're doing is making sure that 40% of their boardroom bonus potential is based upon ESG delivery. And then unless you get that alignment of executive remuneration with actually delivering change, nothing actually changes. So that's example one. Second example is something similar from Morrison's, the UK food retailer, who have committed to work with 3,000 British farmers to help them become net zero by 2030. Again, you can't just turn around to a farmer, often just an individual woman or a man, a family, farming the land in a traditional way for the last 100, 150 years. And you turn around to become net zero overnight. And it's like, how? But I'd like the way the Morrisons have stepped forward and said, yeah, we're going to support them. A third example is the food retailer Co-op, again in the UK, that's committed that by 2025, all its private label food. So most supermarkets will sell a mix of brands and their own private label food. Their private label food and drink will be carbon neutral by 2025. Now, there's an absolute reduction of 11% in emissions initially in that, offset the rest. 
but then a commitment to progressively drive down the offsetting by reducing emissions. So it's not standing still. And I like that for the totality. It's not saying we're going to have a nice niche ethical eco range in the corner of my shop over there. And then there's everything else. It's the whole private level food and drink. Next example is a business called Ricardo, an online retailer. And again, I should say they're owned now by Marks and Spencer, part owned. And I've got a few shares in Marks and Spencer from my historical days there. So just declaration of interest. But Ocado have now got part of their website that highlights 1,500 B Corporation certified businesses. So rather than me having to wade through thousands and thousands of different products to try and find an ethical one, this is the place to go and try and find a good product. And B Corp is interesting in itself because rather than having to look at a carbon label and a human rights label and a water label, in effect, B Corp has looked at all of that for me and just said, here's a good business. So they're all examples of what I like. Old birds, I think, have done a great job at inventing new materials to drive down the carbon footprint of product. They've come up with a new plan just recently to keep driving that down. 50% further reduction of embedded carbon in their products. Love that. But also a commitment to work with their customers to reduce the amount of clothing that's washed at high temperature and the recovery of shoes and clothing when people have finished with them as well. So again, closing the loop, working with citizens as well as behind the scenes to drive change. And Microsoft, I think Microsoft and, to be fair, Google are coming up with some great initiatives now to create these solutions that we want to drive change, the scale use of technology for good. Now, lots of questions about their overall commitment to society, some of the issues that we've spoken about. But in terms of Microsoft's work on the planetary computer, like that work, and a final point, having said that virtually all these business sort of commitments are about environment, what Virgin Media have done to put people at the heart of their business model. They're doing all the green stuff, but the main way that a media technology company can help society is by connecting people. Are lonely, caring for somebody at home, can't get out as much as they want. They're committing to work with them, as well as behind the scenes, cut the carbon footprint and make everything more circular. So putting society and social benefit at the heart of what they're doing as well. So that's just a smattering of examples of people that I've seen doing this stuff. Mike, that's been wonderful. There have been so many insights and examples and personal stories as well. When you look to the future, how do you see it? Are you optimistic or do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? What are your sort of overall thoughts about business and sustainability? Wow, that's the hardest question to answer. And I'm going to answer in part as a scientist, as a parent, as a business leader, as a citizen, all of those sort of swirl around my head. If I just looked at this as a scientist, I'm really worried. You just have to look at the impact on our lives of one degree of warming on average around the world and the impact it's having on our society. People often ask, what's the difference between one, two, three degrees? A, it's not linear in terms of impacts. And second, that contextually, the world used to be, on average, about five or six degrees colder 10,000 years ago. It was the Ice Age, and where I'm sat was probably under 1,000 metres of ice. So if you warm the world three or four degrees the other direction on average, what are you doing? And remembering 10,000 years ago, apart from a few cavemen, there's nobody else on the planet. Yeah, there weren't eight, nine billion people living this just-in-time life, certainly in Western marketplace. It'd be absolutely dreadful. So there's part of me as a scientist that, that said the future is truly dystopian and we've got so much locked in ways of working in infrastructure and so much political indecision and business indecision at the moment that I can't I struggle to imagine how we 
stop at 1.5, how we stop at 2, 2.5, even 3 degrees of warming. So that's the scientific pessimist in me. The business leader in me says, we talk, we've seen how rapidly the power sector and the mobility sector have gone from doing nothing to being totally upended. So I think there's now probably a 10-year cycle from a sector being totally unsustainable to very significantly more sustainable than it is today. Now, there's an awful lot of policy decisions and business innovation, investment decisions to make that happen, but we've proven that we can do it. And the pandemic also proves that we can change our lives as a society and economy very rapidly if we need to as well. And the final point I make as, as a parent and three teenage kids and see their passion for the future, their ingenuity, their drive, recognising that my generation left them with the mess that they need to pick up. But there's just this optimism and courage amongst them to do things differently and do it fast and not wait dead man's shoes for 20 or 30 or 40 years before their prime minister or chief exec, but do it now. And I think we're seeing more and more young activists come through demanding change of political leaders, business leaders. And if we're not willing to change, we should get out of the way. And that's my final point for both of you. When I came out of MS two years ago, people said to me, Mike, become chief sustainability officer at company X, Y, and Z, another big job, one last big job. I was half tempted. But then I've decided to commit professional euthanasia, to take myself out of the C-suite and the shiny glass office and the, the big desk. And even though I think I'm quite good at my job, I can still bring an awful lot to the marketplace with discussions like this, through consultancy, advice, guidance, mentoring. I shouldn't be in that position of power. And I should actively, even though normally I'll carry on working at the five or ten years in the C-suite, I should bring myself out and let a younger generation come through and do things differently. And I don't impose that upon everybody of my generation. We're all different. Of course we are. But I felt very strongly about that that a new generation of leaders is what we require. Wow, that's really powerful, Mike. Thank you again for all those insights and all those thoughts at the end in particular. Really powerful. Thank you, Mike. Yep. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. listening to our more Less podcast you can follow us also on social media our twitter handle is more with less pod and our handles on instagram linkedin and youtube are more with less podcast Thank you.